Everyone, thank you for not being deterred by our uh, Fallon blizzard that's already gone. I do love Nevada. <laughs> that's one thing I don't mind about it. <laughs> Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 6, and Lord willing, we will finish this chapter today. And in my Bible, that means I get to move my bookmark to a new page. And that doesn't happen often around here. We're in Romans chapter 6. And we will start in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were... Slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Though it often tells us very painful things about ourselves, it tells us true things. And so we praise you for your word, and we praise you that we have opportunity this morning to open it, freely, to sit and ponder and study what you have to say in your word about us, about our sin, about what it means to be redeemed, and about this free gift of eternal life in Christ. Father, we ask that you would bless our time this morning. We pray that you would be at work by your spirit, using your word to reach us deep down to places we are uncomfortable or don't understand or can't reach ourselves, yet that is your domain. So we ask that you'd be at work. Help us, Father, as we, as we think through these passages, not to be distracted by this past week or this coming week or even by world events, family events, fears, 
pray that you would speak to us and that we would listen. Even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you share the gospel, you can get a variety of different responses. And some of them are uh, more entertaining than others sometimes. You might get people who want to debate you about the, the truths of the gospel, whether they are indeed true or not. You may get people who will just deny them outright. Often you will get people who just really want you to be quiet and finish talking what you're talking about so they can go on with their lives. They don't really care. There's a variety of response that people give to the sharing of the gospel. And it's interesting as we've been looking through chapter 6 that uh, verse 1 started with a, a, a question. It was almost a, an objection raised by someone to the great news that Paul was spelling out in chapter 5. As he's been talking in chapter 5 about this, these great truths of the fact that we were born in Adam and thus we inherit certain things, sin and, and condemnation and corruption that we inherited from Adam. And yet, in Christ, we inherit an entirely new set of things where we inherit righteousness from Him. We inherit a perfect record from Him. We, we inherit life where we had death before. And that's such great news. And immediately there's an objection. In chapter 6 and verse 1, so are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul had been talking about the fact that our sin had been mounting up, and not just ours as in yours and mine, but all of mankind's sin had been mounting up. It was, it was huge, and it was growing worse. And in light of that, and in contrast to that, and in solution to that, we see the grace of God. Mounting up. We see God at work in even greater ways than sin mounts up. And we see sin being overcome by grace. We see Christ overcoming all of those consequences from Adam. And so, if the increase of sin glorified the grace of God all the more, the objection is, why wouldn't we just sin a little more so that we can give God a, a larger hurdle to jump so that we can show off His grace all the more by adding some more sin to the mix? And of course, Paul's answer is, may it never be. Absolutely not. God forbid. The person who raises such an objection doesn't understand what it means to be in Christ and no longer in Adam, that, that in fact we have died to sin. We, we're alive to God. And so returning to sin is unfathomable for us. It's not an option. It's not something that we can do. We have a new life principle. We have a new life within us because we have died to sin and we are alive to God in Christ. And so the notion that we can just continue adding sin to the mix so that God's grace looks all the better is foolishness. It shows that the person doesn't even understand the truths of the gospel, doesn't even understand that we have a new life. We have a new principle. We have a new direction that we're headed. We have a new life in Christ having died to sin. And so he explains that 
in the first few uh, paragraphs of chapter 6, that raises another objection. Because Paul concluded in verse 14, Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. That raises another potential objection to Paul's gospel. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? If the law has been removed from over, if we are no longer underneath that law as a principle for relating to God, if, he, if that standard of our behavior, that standard of our life is no longer the determining factor of our relating to God, if we are no longer under law but under grace, Shall we just continue in sin? Because there's no law. There's no law saying we can't. So shall we just continue in sin? In other words, does grace mean freedom to sin? That's the question. If we're going to talk about grace as much as we do, if we're going to talk about grace as much as Paul does, aren't we really just opening the door for people to come to faith in Christ and then live however they please? That is often the fear. And that's the question that you may get in response to the gospel if the person has a, a particular background where they come from a, a religion of works. And you preach grace and they say, yeah, but aren't you really just saying that someone can believe and then live however they want? Isn't that what you're saying? Isn't this kind of grace really just a license, an excuse to continue sinning? Paul's immediate answer is, may it never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. And that's his immediate response there in verse 15. And our task for the remainder of the day is to look at why Paul answered it that way and what he means, because it's a pretty good question. It's a pretty good question that maybe, if we're honest with ourselves, we've, we've thought of ourselves. If we are no longer under law but under grace, well, what's to keep us just from taking advantage of that grace and living how we want? And so Paul goes into this explanation in our passage for today. And in verse 16, he, he gives an explanation that has to do with slaves and masters. First of all, in, in verse 16, he's talking about Notice, I want you to notice he's talking about one slave. There's only one slave he's talking about, and that's, that's you. That's you. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There's one slave, one single person he's talking about, you, but with two potential, two possible destinies. Notice, first of all, that he says, do you not know? That's a rhetorical question. He means, you know this. You know, it's common knowledge. And the imagery that he uses of slaves and masters would have been readily apparent in that day, particularly in Rome where an enormous percentage of the population were slaves owned by other people. And so even, even the church to which Paul is writing would have had slaves in their midst. 
was a normal thing. And so they understand slavery. They understand masters. Slavery in that day was a little bit different than maybe the slavery we're used to. In that day, if a person got into a tight financial spot, they had the option of selling themselves into slavery so as to resolve that financial crisis. If you got into debt too deep, if there was something you couldn't pay for, you had the option of selling yourself into slavery so that you could pay that bill. And so once you did that, once you made the deal, once you sold yourself into slavery, guess what? You're now that person's slave. They own you. You belong to them. Paul says, if you present yourself to someone as a slave, you are now obligated as a slave to that person that you sold yourself to. And so you, of course, would think very seriously before you took such a step, but it was a step that was available to you and many people would take. So there's one slave, but there are two masters. Notice that there are two masters, sin and obedience. So you can present yourself, and when you present yourself as obedient slaves, then you're, you're a slave to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There are two masters presented here, sin on the one hand, and obedience on the other hand. Sin against God, or obedience to God. And something he wants us to see here is that we are always presenting ourselves as obedient slaves to one or the other. There are only two masters. There's not a third one. And there's no autonomy in this equation. He's saying you either serve one or you serve the other. There is no tertium quid, no third option. Having presented yourself to one, one or the other of those masters, that then you're now bound to obey the commands of that one. And he comments here, we're going to get more into the commands and things later, but the, he comments here about what we receive, about the two rewards. We had one slave, we had two masters, and now he talks about two rewards. Because those two masters pay very different wages. He says we present ourselves uh, either to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. If we are slaves to sin, death is our wage. If we are slaves to obedience, righteousness is our wage. And so he's setting up the, the, the context. He's telling you what he's talking about. He's, he's putting the, the terms into play so that you can understand what he means. And we have these two masters who pay very different wages. The question he moves into next in the next little subparagraph here is, how is that wage of righteousness made ours? How is that wage of righteousness made ours? And so he begins to discuss the fact that we are slaves of righteousness. We look at verses 17, 18, and 19. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. First, there is a miraculous freedom. A miraculous freedom. Thanks be to God that you were once, you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the teaching to which you were committed. There's a miraculous freedom that we used to be slaves. We used to be bound under sin. We used to have sin as our master, and yet we have been set free. What makes that obedience or what, what makes that miraculous? What's so miraculous about that? Well, what's miraculous about it is the fact that it's obedience from the heart. You see, you as a master or you as a parent or you as a boss or you as someone with power can make someone else obey because you're bigger than them, because you have dirt on them, because you know how to threaten them, you know how to twist their arm. You can make them obey, but you do not have the power to make anyone obey from the heart. You can't do it. You could force someone into line. But you cannot make them obey from the heart. But this obedience here, when we were, we were set free, we were respond to God. There's something new. We've become obedient from the heart. That's the realm where only God can work. The Bible tells us the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We're not even sure of our own hearts. You're not even master of your own heart. But that's the realm in which God works. The realm of the heart. And so what's miraculous about this is not only that we have been set free from our slavery to sin, but the fact that we have been made obedient from the heart to something new. To something new. And it's important for us to remember that that's the level where God works. He, he works in all levels. But the, the one that is the most mysterious, perhaps, is the fact that he works in the human heart. To change someone who was a slave to sin to someone who's obedient to him from the heart. And so there's a miraculous freedom that we have. And this miraculous freedom of obedience from the heart is referred to in the Old Testament. It's, it's discussed particularly in Ezekiel 36 and in other passages where speaking in the context of the old covenant, the old relationship under the law with the way... God related to his people and his people related to him. He says there's going to be a new covenant. And in Ezekiel 36, we read this. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a miraculous freedom that God has wrought within us. That he has changed our hearts. Something we don't even have the power to do. Having been freed from our old tyrannical master of sin, we find ourselves in a glorious alternative slavery. A glorious and alternative slavery. Verse 18, we, we were set free from that. Having been set free from sin, verse 18, have become slaves of righteousness. You see, we weren't set free and then turned loose on our own recognizance, as it were, as if we were autonomous. We were transferred from one master to another master. We have this new slavery. 
But it's a glorious and a wonderful slavery to God. You see, man was created in a, in a state of submission, subjection even, to God. That's the state in which we were created. When we were without sin, we were still in subjection to God. And when we fell into sin, we didn't find the freedom that Satan promised. We found slavery to something new. We found slavery to death, to sin, to destruction. We moved from one position of subjection to God himself and moved to another one where we're now in, in submission to sin that hates us, destroys us. And here the discussion is about us being taken back from that subjection, that slavery to sin and brought into slavery to God, slavery to obedience to Him. I want to note in passing here, us being set free, that's passive, meaning it happened to us. We didn't spring ourselves this isn't the great escape and we dug a tunnel to get out. He set us free. It's passive. It happened to us. And we have become slaves of righteousness. It doesn't come through in the English, but that is also passive. We have been put into, we have been made, we have been enslaved by God to himself. That's passive. It happened to us. This is something that's happening from without where God is working salvation. He is taking the person who is bound to sin, enslaved to sin, freeing that person from that slavery and placing him into subjection to himself. This is the work of God. This is a, a passive thing that he is doing to us. This alternative slavery we have is a beautiful thing. We have a righteous new master who loves us, who does what is best, who cares for us. And in the context of this new and glorious service to God, Paul reminds us of a crucial command in verse 19, a crucial command. First of all, notice he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, because of the weakness of your flesh. So he's using an image, a word picture. And he's saying, I, I, I'm using this word picture so you can get the message, so that you can understand and so he uses that image of slavery and, and masters and freedom and obedience and all of that because he's trying to com, com, convey to us the truth of this doctrine. And it may be a little bit hard for us to hear these kinds of words. I don't necessarily like being called a slave to anything. But it's the word he uses. And so he says, I'm using this image so that you will understand the relationship, our past relationship to sin and our present relationship to God himself. And so in the context of that, we have this command in verse 19, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, this is the past truth about you. You presented your, your body. You presented your members. You presented yourself. You showed up for duty to your old slave master. And these are the results that you got. You presented yourself to commit these sorts of things and those sorts of things, impurity and uncleanness, just multiplied into more and more of the same. And so he says, you can relate to that because you can remember, Christian, what it was like. And so he says, just as 
You once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, in your new context, as a Christian, with a new slave master, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Just as you used to yield your body, yourself, to sin, to pursue the kind of sin that is your kind of sin, and it might have looked like self-righteousness, it might have looked like superiority over others, it might have looked like debauchery, it might have looked like outright evil that would land you in jail, but you would show up and you would do the things that your old slave master told you in the same way. Report for duty, as it were. Show up. But to your new master. Righteousness. Be present. Present yourself. Show up. Come to work, as it were. Be there. Ready to subject yourself. Ready to submit yourself to, to obedience. You have a new master. He's already argued in the previous part of this chapter that you have died and you are now alive to God. You, you, you are now alive where you were dead and you have a new master. Before, you had an old master and you were dead to God, as it were, and now you're alive to God and you have a new master, so show up. Show up and, and be ready for righteousness. It's the new principle of your life. It's not just a new idea. It's not just a new slogan that you've taken on. It's not just turning over a new leaf or something like that. This is a new principle of who you are. That you are His slave. So show up. Present yourself to Him like you used to present yourself to sin. Present yourself to Him and to obedience to Him. Just like you used to with your sin. As we yield ourselves to the righteousness of God, we are changed in our character and life to reflect those things that have been made true of us in our inner man in Christ. He says, Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. That's what sanctification here means. You see, he described in detail... In chapter 5 and even in parts of chapter 6, described in detail the change that has been made within us, within our heart. An inward change where we went from rebellion against God to being God's son. We went from death to life. We went from being God's enemy and deserving death to being in Christ and deserving life because of him. So those things happened within us. They happened deep down. They're, they're truths that happened. And sanctification is when those inward truths begin to show themselves outwardly in your behavior, in your life, so that other people can see that, so that the inward principle becomes outward and visible in your life. And what Paul says here in verse 19 is that he wants us to present our members as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. Just like you used to show up to duty for your old master and follow him wherever he said go. And sin led to worse sin, led to worse sin, and down that road. He says instead, now that you are new, now that you have a new master, now that you're alive to him, show up to him and, and obey. 
That's the new principle truth about you is obedience is your master. So submit yourself to obedience. And you know what will happen? You will obey more. And your life will be changed. And you'll begin to see sanctification. You'll begin to see outward demonstration of the inward truth within you. In other words, we were made new within when we were transferred from Adam to Christ. And as we respond to God with obedience from the hearts, by by the way, it's something no one who's in Adam can do. No one who is in Adam can respond from the heart with obedience to God. That's what Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 8. When we respond to God with heart obedience, we grow more and more to show outwardly in our character and actions the things that are true of us in Christ that moment we were first converted. And our service to our master yields fruit of that slavery. Look at verses 20, 21, and 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. First, there was a shameful fruit. There was a shameful fruit when we served our old master. When we were bound to sin, when we were under bondage to rebellion, we bore fruit, didn't we? I bore fruit. The kind of fruit I'm ashamed of. Even decades later, there is shameful fruit, and that's what he says. He says, what fruit were you getting from that? You were were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting from the the lifestyle that you were living? Yeah, you you didn't feel, you didn't sense... You didn't know and understand that you were to obey God and and what it was to be like. You instead followed after the flesh and your own desires. So you were free with regard to righteousness. You didn't see that it bound, that it affected you. And what was the fruit? What was the fruit of such a life? So there was shameful fruit. That was fruit of which we are now ashamed there used to be that shameful fruit, but now in Christ there is holy fruit. But now that you have been set free from sin, verse 20, 22, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. There is new fruit. It's important vitally important that we understand the order of events, the sequence of what is going on here. Because when we were slaves to sin, our heart was bound to sin and we could not respond in obedience to God from the heart. We could do things that looked like obedience, but we did not have the capacity to respond to God with obedience from the heart because our heart was in rebellion against God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that was us. But what did he do? He set us free from that. He delivered us from that slavery to sin. Remember I said it was passive. 
It happened to us. It was something he did to us that we were set free. And then he subjected us, him again at work on us, subjected us to himself so that we respond in obedience now, obedience from the heart because he has created us new. He has made us new. He has made us to respond with obedience from the heart. That's the realm in which God works. And that's how this works. But so far, that's a change that is inward. It's a true change of us. Thinking back to chapter 5 of the, the, the legal declaration of us being taken from Adam and put into Christ. New things are true of us. It's, it's legal and it's also true of us deep down. But it hasn't yet been made known in our, in our behavior. That is where this passage comes in. He says, those things are true of you deep down, so what do we do? Well, we re- respond in obedience to God. We begin to obey Him. We, we can now, and not only can we now, we want to. That's what it means to obey from the heart. We want to obey Him, so obey Him. Do what He says. Learn what He says. And do what He says. And what's the result? Well, We, be- be- we begin to show outwardly the things that are true of us inwardly. That's called sanctification. And that's the fruit that we get, the holy fruit. And he says there is eternal fruit as well because that sanctification has an end. It has a direction. It has a purpose. That sanctification, the end of that road is eternal life. There is a sense in which we have eternal life the moment we are converted. And there is a sense in which eternal life is ours in the future. And here he's speaking about the sense in which that eternal life is ours in the future. And the road between here and there, it's guaranteed to everyone who's in Christ, but the road between here and there is paved with sanctification. The sanctification that he's doing. So our life, Christian, looks like a process where God is at work sanctifying us. And the conclusion, the end of that is eternal life. So there is eternal fruit. And so we have our conclusion. Our old service led to death and our new service leads to life and look at 23 how he sums it up for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he discusses three things quickly here. This is a a sermon in itself, and I'm not going to preach that due to time. And But there's a master that is served, sin and God. Sin or God, sin versus God. There's an outcome of that service, death or eternal life. And there's a means by which that outcome is obtained. One is an earned wage, the wages of sin. is death. One is an earned wage and the other is a free gift. And so Paul brings us back around lest we get lost in the weeds and begin to focus so much on our own obedience, on our own response and the fact that we have a a, a new slave master and so we're supposed to show up for duty and we're supposed to serve him and respond in obedience lest we begin to think, okay, that's the process by which we obtain eternal life. That's the process by which we obtain favor with God or peace with him. Lest we begin to go down that road and think those things that are not true, he closes with 23. 
Yeah, there's a wage involved. There's something we deserve. The wage of sin is death. That's where the earning comes in. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. And what about eternal life? Is that, is that the wages of obedience? Is that the, the wages of responding? Is that the wages of justification? Is that the wages of anything? It's a free gift. It's a free gift. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he brings it right back around to the glorious truth which, which he, with which he concluded the last chapter. This gift of eternal life in Christ that he accomplished for us. And it sounds too good to be true, and the unbeliever thinks it's too good to be true. And Christians sometimes, sometimes wrestle with it and think, yeah, but surely I've got to toe the line. Surely I've got to do my part, add my peace. Paul comes right back around and reminds us that it is a free gift. And it is ours in Christ Jesus. And so if the men who are serving communion would come forward, today we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's where we celebrate this new life that we have in Christ and why we have it. These elements are, they picture for us what has been done for us in Christ, what Jesus on the cross has suffered and why he did so. And so as we partake of this, this time is for, for believers. It's for those who are in Christ, for those who have been made new in him, for those who have him as their slave master. This is where we celebrate that service to him. We celebrate what he has done for us to make us his own. And so if you're not a believer, just let the elements pass. There's no shame in that at all. And then come talk to me. Come talk to one of us about what it means to be in Christ. Get some explanation about what we've talked about this morning. And Christian, this is a time when we call to mind what he has done. There is an element in which we examine our own hearts. And I'll tell you why we do that. Because when you examine your own heart, you will find sin there. And your sin may be in the form of self-righteousness. Because really, I didn't have that much sin this time. So there's going to be sin there. And when you find that sin... That drives you to repentance, to mourning for that sin. And it drives you to celebrate and rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. Because that sin, believer, was paid for by Him. And you have righteousness before God because of what He has done. That free gift of eternal life is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Men, if you would take up the bread, please.